Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Nikki Lovegrove and I'm back in the driver's seat today for today's discussion. And I'm alongside my co-host, Professor Sharon Bessel. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, Nikki. Policy Forum is based at Crawford School of Public Policy, Asia and the Pacific's leading public policy school. Come study with us. You can find out more at crawford.anu.edu.au. And today's discussion is something that sits at the heart of public policymaking, or at least it ought to. Today, we're talking about ethics. The 2018 Edelman Trust Barometer surveys 28 countries on their level of public trust in institutions. In other words, whether the institutions of government, business, NGOs and the media can be trusted to tell the truth and trusted to do the right thing. And this year, it found that Australia stands only four percentage points ahead of the very lowest ranked country in that survey, which is Russia. And across all 28 nations surveyed, um, an average of 42% say that their trust in government is their most broken across all the institutions. In Australia, that level of um, distrust was 56%. So this seems to be a time when people are having serious doubts about whether our institutions can be trusted to do the right thing. Are our policymakers really unethical? If they are, what can we do about it? If it's more of a problem of perception, how can they regain public trust? And on the flip side, as leaders, what can they do to inspire people to be more ethical themselves? So, Nikki, to talk about some of these issues today, we've got a fantastic panel with us, a lawyer, an economist and a philosopher. Professor Noel Van Long is the James McGill Professor of Economics at McGill University in Canada and an honorary professor here at the Crawford School. He recently delivered the F. H. Gruen Public Lecturer at the ANU um, in the Research School of Economics, where he spoke about some of these very issues. The topic of that talk was ethical motivation and eth- economic behaviour. Welcome, No. Thank you. We also have Professor Christian Barry, who is Professor of Philosophy at the ANU Research School of Social Sciences, and Christian is also co-editor of the journal Political Philosophy. Christian's research focuses on ethical theory, the philosophy of action and international justice. So the perfect person to be talking about some of these issues. Welcome, Christian. Uh, Thanks for having me. And finally, Associate Professor Vivian Holmes. Vivian is Associate Professor at the ANU College of Law. She teaches and researches in the fields of legal ethics, legal education and the legal profession. So again, um, areas that are, that are right in the space that we're discussing today. Vivian, welcome to you. Thank you. Before we begin, a reminder to our listeners that we'd love to hear your thoughts on the discussion today. And we'll be bringing in some of your comments from earlier podcasts, as well as your comments on some of our Policy Forum articles at the end of the pod, so stay tuned for that discussion. But for now, let's dig into ethics and policy. And Christian, perhaps if I could start with you. A quick scan of the news in the last month have had stories of the Banking Royal Commission in Australia, which has seen some of Australia's largest financial institutions accused of destroying people's lives. We've also had a Philippine president who has joked about his soldiers raping raping women. And in the United States, we've had um, scenes of screaming children torn from their parents' arms as a result of Trump's border policies. 
Does ethics even have a place in public life anymore? I certainly think that ethics has a place in public life. I mean, there are two ways of thinking about it. One is whether or not people should be acting ethically and paying attention to ethical norms and how they act. And then there's the second question as to what extent are ethical norms playing a role in people's deliberations and actions in politics. I think uh, the first is always true. I think that there are always ethical reasons for people to act in particular ways. Um, whether or not that actually influences people's behavior, I think, varies a great deal. But I also think it's kind of important to distinguish between um, decisions and policies that we disagree with um, and claiming that the person who's implementing them is not acting in the light of what they think is an ethically right thing to do. There are lots of cases where we disagree with people, um, but it doesn't follow from that that they're not trying in good faith to deliberate ethically about what the right thing to do is. The examples you gave may not be, in some cases, the best examples of that. And we certainly think that some people have rather bizarre ideas of what the right thing to do is. Sometimes we think they they have bizarre ideas because they just don't reason ethically. Or sometimes we think they have rather strange beliefs about how the world works and how people are going to respond to different policies. Christian, Nikki mentioned um, the United States approach to dealing with people crossing that southern border. And this has been very much in the media of late. And it also goes to the heart of one of the, the very serious ethical issues that we face today, and that's the movement of people. Um, in Europe, we're seeing an increasing number of countries refuse entry to asylum seekers or to unauthorised migrants. And of course, this is often a, a deeply value-laden set of issues that people are, are dealing with. A few days ago, we had the Italian internal minister, uh, Matteo Silvini, refer to migrants as human meat, or at least he was reported as doing so. What's the role of ethics across national borders? And what responsibility do leaders have towards human beings who are not citizens? So I think the issues of immigration are really complex. And um, there are a lot of different issues that need to be disentangled to think about it pretty clearly. So one of the things that keeps coming up in the news is whether or not states have a right to control their own borders. And many people who are defending some of the policies on border policies taken by the United States in the European Union and Australia say, try to defend their approach by saying, well, but don't we have a right to defend our own borders? So some philosophers actually challenge whether or not we should have closed borders and whether there really are rights to exclude. But I think it's important to recognize that even if you agree with the idea that states have a right to unilaterally control their own borders, there's a significant range of different ways they might control their own borders. Now, you mentioned the kind of rhetoric that surrounds many migrants referring to them as being sort of an infestation or as human meat. Now, those are specific ways in which you can dehumanize people who are just ordinary people, often fleeing very terrible political situations. Now, that's obviously not something that you have to do to defend your own borders. Plus, it's also the case that you can defend your own borders or control your own borders without doing things like separating parents from their children. There's nothing in the idea of securing your own borders that requires you to act in any of these ways. So the key is if you actually assume that states, or at least you just assume for the purposes of argument that states have a right to control their own borders unilaterally, what is the most humane way they can do so? What sorts of policies are can both show respect to people who are trying to gain entry, either for reasons of need or circumstance, um, while at the same time exercising some control? When we think about these issues, it's obvious that the field of philosophy has a lot to offer, and especially when it comes to thinking how leaders can act morally. And I wonder, do you think politicians and other leaders should be required to 
have training in ethical issues? Should they, for example, be required to learn about utilitarianism and Kant's universal law? Would that, would that help at all? Well, much as I'd like to be able to be a big booster for my discipline, I think there are lots of good reasons to study philosophy and to study ethics, but I would not put my name down to say that studying ethics necessarily makes you ethically better. I just simply don't know what the evidence would be, and I think it would be very difficult to de- determine that. I certainly think in general, it's a good thing to be exposed to different ethical ideas. There may be other people who have a better view or a more clear, empirically informed view about whether the study of ethics actually makes you, you more ethical. I think that the, the reasons why people act unethically often have very little to do with the fact that they don't know what the ethical requirements are. Sometimes that's the case, but often they do in some sense know that they're violating an ethical norm and they do so anyway. So any no matter of ethical teaching will make people be stronger willed or less open to temptation from various kinds of incentives that they face. I, I might um, butt in there, yeah, I suppose, and, and talk about the work of a academic in the US called Professor Mary Gentili, who's done a lot of work around this question of, well, most of the scandals we read about, people did know what the right thing to do is, but they didn't do it. And so the challenge for many people is not knowing the right thing, but how do I get it done? And a lot, and her work is, and we've started doing this with our law students, is, well, okay, you know that you can't do that because you'll be in breach of the ethical rules, so it's black-white, it's not a grey situation. How am I going to most constructively say no to my boss um, or to the client, etc.? And And... There is some psychological research showing that the more we practice saying no, the better we get at it. In other words, that we build moral muscle. So I think that's a really exciting area of work and research. I actually want to delve a bit deeper into um, the relationship between ethics and the law. Obviously, lawyers have an ethical and professional obligation to their clients, but we also know that this can often mean helping, say, the guilty escape justice or defending the interests of the rich and powerful. So what what role do you see ethics playing in the law? Well, lawyers have very clear ethical obligations uh, that are set out not only in case law, but in professional conduct rules. There are, of course, grey areas, but most mostly the, the obligations are very clear. The defending the guilty is a classic cocktail party, how can you possibly do that question? And the response is, well, I'm not the judge. We have a system where the evidence is put to the judge and the jury if there is one, and they're the decision maker. My obligation is to do the best for my client and put the evidence fairly to the court. Of course, within that uh, responsibility to the client, there's an overriding responsibility to the court. So a lawyer is not allowed to lie to the court on behalf of a client. And if a lawyer finds out that the client has lied to the court, um, either in a civil or criminal matter, they are obligated to tell the client that, to instruct the lawyer to tell the court, if that makes sense. In other words, I know that you've told me that you've perjured yourself. I've got to tell the court that. And if you don't let me tell the court that, I'll stop acting for you. So that's the, the guilty or the telling the court lies situation. In terms of working for the rich and powerful, well, the ethical obligations are the same, whether the client is very poor or very rich. Of course, the problem in our society is that the very rich can afford very, can afford very good justice in a sense. And so I think one of the broader ethical challenges that our profession and probably the society has is the whole access to justice question. Like we've got a great justice system comparatively, I'd say in the world, but in that our courts are held in fairly high regard and our judges are generally not um, accused of being corrupt or biased. But uh, for most people, you've got to have money to get there. 
and the amount of money going into things like legal aid has decreased dramatically over the decades. And I think that's a big ethical problem. I think one of the important things that Vivian's last comment picks up on is that sometimes when we think about acting ethically, we focus very much on individuals and how they ought to deliberate and act. But clearly, one of the most important things we can do to ensure that people act ethically is to design social institutions in the right sort of way. When you create certain systems of incentives where, you know, it's very difficult to be a lawyer and work for anybody other than a wealthy client, for example, um, that's going to lead to certain kinds of outcomes. Um, When you design a system where you ensure that there's sound legal representation for people who are disadvantaged, that's going to lead to different... If you simply leave things up to the strength of the will of the individual, it's going to be very difficult. You need to think of the system as a whole. And even in the case of the, the legal ethics case, the justification for defense attorneys is that as a whole, the system functions better if there is a kind of adversarial situation with respect to prosecution and defense, at least in some legal systems. That's an open question whether or not that's true, but the overall justification for why particular lawyers can act on behalf of their clients, even if they think they may be guilty, is that in general justice is best served by this sort of division of roles. I'm interested in in this idea of the the collectivity, if you like, and the role of institutions beyond the individual. And I'm thinking, Vivian, about the the point that you made about developing moral muscle and the way you work with students to develop that moral muscle. That's a really fascinating idea. How do you or do you see the potential for that to move outside the classroom where you're dealing with your law students to an idea that might permeate more widely across society to help us think about some of these complex issues and to engage people in a discussion about how we think about institutions and about how we think about the everyday behaviour of citizens and and non-citizens in relation to some of these really complex issues. Yes, certainly. I mean, I know that Mary Gentile's work has been picked up by a wide variety of disciplines and by, for example, social enterprise and working with kids like you know parents have had conversations with kids about how they deal with certain behavior in the playground for example so yes I think it's got it's got great potential I think a point that's important though and Mary agrees with this is that is that the social context um, as as we've just been hearing is extremely powerful and important but the individual is not completely powerless so this sort of moral muscle, um, can be exercised, but overall, I think we need to be looking at how we we build social organisations or, or workplaces so that it's easier to be ethical. And there's quite a lot of research again around that about the fact that if your ethical climate is perceived to be one in which power and self-interest is dominant, then you're more likely to take the ethical shortcuts and and not act ethically, and and also your well-being and your job satisfaction is likely to be lower. Whereas if you perceive your environment to be one in which the people who are making the decisions act with integrity and care about people, you're more likely to act ethically. So those those big inst- um, structural issues are very important. Yeah, I think the social institution, as you say, is very, very important, the design of it. And one particular social institution that I like to focus on is education system, actually. Um, especially, say, in economics, we tend to teach our economic students the wrong thing. We say that, uh, well, people are self-interested, and we just have to focus on that aspect. And that 
really create a bias uh, in individual thinking, and people eventually think that, well, at economists anyway, uh, it's okay to be selfish, which is really wrong. And actually, recently, a professor at economic at then at in Jerusalem uh, made a test with various group of students, and he surveyed the student opinion about firing of workers during a recession. Um, and uh, there are various groups, and the group of economists, economic students, undergraduate, would make a choice that you fire the worker to maximize the profit, choose the right level of worker to maximize the profit. The philosopher student, the philosophy student chose the opposite. They say, we don't fire anybody. It's completely the opposite. Uh, of course, it's difficult to know whether that is because we teach them the wrong thing, or they self-select. In other words, the people who are selfish want to be economists, and the people who are genius want to be philosophers anyway. So uh, maybe it's not to do with education. That's a difficult issue. But I think education is important, and we are uh, increasingly paying too much emphasis on rules and regulation on external rigor, and not enough on intrinsic motive. Um, and that actually start with the primary level of education. Um, so at primary school level, many good education systems will insist that you motivate the children to cooperate, to have empathy, to understand other people's perspective, and um, at different values. For example, I come from Quebec, and my, my granddaughter goes to public school. I insist that she goes to public school, not private school. And the public school system is very good in terms of education, of um, respecting other people's values. I read the textbook. The textbook will say, OK, you teach them about Judaism, about Islam, about everything. And they highlight the similarity and the value of this system. So even my child, uh, my granddaughter, who was very young still, appreciate, learn to appreciate people, different people have different, well, different view of things, but actually they have a common good that they share. And um, I think that's very important in education. Yeah. We've talked a, a little bit about um, some of the formal institutions. And no, I agree with you entirely about the importance of education. Um, and that is one of the traditional institutions by which we transmit values, either consciously or unconsciously, explicitly or implicitly. And we've talked about the law. One of the the... the most powerful institutions, if you could call it an institution today, is arguably social media. And of course, in, in relation to social media, we see some incredibly um, positive things. We might refer to them as in terms of raising ethical issues, having these kinds of debates. But we also see incredible negativity. You know, we see that whole spectrum. What are your thoughts about the role that social media plays in relation to some of these these moral and ethical discussions that we need to have across the society? Um, well, social media is obviously a sort of very powerful tool, um, and it can be used in positive ways and it can be used in negative ways. I mean, some of the ways in which it can be used negatively is false information can very easily get a foothold and can be absorbed by many, many people. And I think that one of the issues in the move away from sort of traditional media to reliance on social media, reliance on who you happen to follow on Twitter, what you happen to follow, is that we've lost uh, a sense that there are sort of common media organizations that 
we generally trust in, maybe not perfectly, but to some extent, and that claims can be adjudicated against this sort of common source. So what you see increasingly is people simply treating as discredited information that people are offering in defense of their views simply because of the source. So if you follow social media in the United States, saying, citing a paper, citing the fact that something was claimed in the New York Times or to the, in the Washington Post is actually sort of a disqualifying feature of that claim to many people. Um, that's quite disturbing. I mean, for all of the, the difficulties and the problems of those sorts of mainstream press organizations, the idea that they are, there were sort of papers of record, and I still think they really are papers of record, um, played a very important role in debate. And once you get sort of this completely disconnected communities where people are relying completely on different sources of information and there's very little interaction, I think that's quite dangerous. People get siloed and the possibility of resolving some of these conflicts becomes greatly lessened. Vivian, any role for the law here? I suppose we've seen the, the scandal with Facebook and, you know, the, the sharing of information um, by, Cam- what was it, Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica, Analytica. And, Analytica and Facebook's attempt to, you know, re- um, restore its reputation and say that they're going to be, you know, more careful in future. So that sort of self-regulation idea. I suppose it's early days in terms of social media, but I do think... Uh, if self-regulation doesn't work, the law's certainly got a role. Um, I mean, to some extent, the the offences that we've already got um, apply in the social media context. But but the whole um, so, for example, you can't defame someone on social media. I mean, it's actionable on if you do it on social media, just like if you've done it in the newspaper, um, uh, or if you threaten to kill someone. You know, there there are legal mechanisms to deal with those sorts of things. But I also think that the whole area is 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 so um, is changing so rapidly that the law is in some ways has to catch up. So it'd be I mean I'm just thinking when um, Christian mentioned the uh, social media use for bad, when I I was with some students in a, a uh, we did a clinical program in Myanmar. This was in early twenty seventeen. So it was before the you know disgraceful treatment of the Rohingyas last year in August particularly, but that's that has a very long history. But some of the students did some research projects on social media impact on that issue. And there was some really extraordinary statistics about uh, a very radical Buddhist monk who was very anti-Muslim um, having, you know, a, a very high percentage of all the, of the total number of Facebook users in Myanmar were following him. Um, and the students had also had conversations with Myanmar students in Myanmar saying, you know, well, those photos, are, our students were saying, do you know this is going on? And they were saying, oh, no, that's just fake news. You know, so so there's very horrific examples of social media being an instrument for very bad things happening. And I suppose... The the open question is, well, should the law step in in those situations and um, try and regulate that? No, you talked about intrinsic motivation. Is it intrinsic motivation that we need to be thinking about rather than legal frameworks in relation to some of these issues or, or both? Yeah, actually, uh, economists are now learning. I'm talking from economists. We're learning from the psychology people, and they now distinguish uh, intrinsic motivation and like, versus extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation like reward and penalty, like people, government pay you, uh, 
to doing things and penalize you for treating attacks. These are extrinsic motivation. The intrinsic motivation is that you feel it's the right thing to do. For example, you say, okay, we have a social compass, which we say we pay tax for public services. So at tax time, we don't cheat. And economists are increasingly realizing that people actually have that intrinsic motivation. Because they did some rough calculation, they say, if you really want to maximize your income, your expected income, the best thing to cheat, because people don't really catch you that much. And when they catch, they don't find you that much. So if you work on expected, uh, like paying a lottery, uh, buying lottery ticket, you win by cheating. But then we say, if economists are, if people are rational, why don't they cheat then? Uh, why don't, because there are very few people actually cheat in tax, according to the audit report. So they say it must be extrinsic, intrinsic motivation. People have a realization that they have to contribute to common good. Of course, I don't mean that people have to voluntarily pay tax because that wouldn't work. The tax system should have some kind of penalty, yes. Uh, but given the tax system, we should really encourage people to have to, to develop their intrinsic motivation further by sending them reminder and things like that. You know, uh, okay, people are paying tax. Uh, in UK, they do the experiment, they send notice to people, they say, you are behind in tax, but you know that 80% of people are not behind in tax. And these people started to pay in tax, even though there's no mention of, of, of penalty or anything like that. So motivation is important, but people have to be reminded all the time of what is good. And I think an interesting point in that UK example is is the influence of knowing that 80% of your friends and neighbours are paying your tax. Whereas if the UK could not say that and only 5% were paying, you'd think, well, why would I be the dummy who pays? You know. So the fact that we know the fact that we know as a community we're, we're generally all paying tax is yes. a big influence on the individual yes. to pay their tax because they want to be on board with the, with right. the commune. No, I read that recent uh, article by economists come philosopher on seeing and being seen. They say both are important. So yes. Seeing people doing the right thing, you try to emulate them. Yes. But also you worry of being seen as irresponsible person. You want to be seen as a responsible person. So these sort of things uh, act on intrinsic motivation and uh, try to uh, eventually uh, these two aspects, which mean that people are not perfect because if people are seen, they don't need to be seen and they don't need to be seen. They just do it. But of course, people are not seen. So I think uh, how the government or public institution try to use this um, attitude of response, of uh, motivation to being seen and seeing can be useful to, to, to foster uh, good behavior, I think. On the topic of economic motivation, you've spoken about how historically economics as a field has tended to assume that people are you know, rational, self-interested actors. And you've got you know, the founder of economics, Adam Smith, having this quote, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Do you think that this approach that economics has taken historically has been damaging to um, to either public policy or to, to public ethics if it treats people as purely self-interested? Yeah. Well, let me start with a small correction. Uh, what you say about Adam Smith is correct. He said, you know, when you go and buy the bread, uh, it's not because of... 
Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Because now so you just want to maximize profit. That's true. And that we call it invisible hand that make the market work and uh, profit motives good. On the other hand, I, in my ruin lecture, I, the second slide cited another argument by Smith. He said there is a second invisible hand, which is moral norms. If a society has no moral norms and no respect for duties, uh, it will collapse, crumble into nothing. That paragraph in Adam Smith, it seems I'm the first one to find out, uh, has never been recited anywhere. So I really said, okay, he, he mentioned one hand, the market, the other hand, the social norms, and very important to have both hands to work. Uh, but as you were mentioning, economists going the wrong way because many economists anyway, they read only the first Adam Smith paragraph and not the second one. Uh, so now uh, increasingly uh, large number of economists are trying to attract attention to the moral aspect that Adam Smith mentioned. So um, they say that people actually don't be, not everyone behave in a selfish way. They behave in a very uh, generous way. Actually, one example uh, which you can presumably test to your students uh, is uh, called the traveler dilemmas. The traveler dilemma is a story in economics we say like this. There are two travelers uh, who, who purchased uh, some object of art, but the airline company damaged that object of art. So the two travelers complain to the airline company and say, please pay me a reward. Are they the um, whatever, insurance. So the, the airline company say, okay, we divide a scheme. We think the maximum value of this object is $300. The minimum is $180, but we don't know when. So we ask you guys to nominate the amount. Uh, the person that nominates the least, the least amount will get it. The smaller of the two amount will get that payment. The person who nominates the highest amount will get only the smallest payment minus the penalty of $5, which will then be transferred to the person who mentioned the lowest amount. So suppose you, you won 300 you say 300 and I would beat you, I would say 299 because if I send 299 I would get it, and you get only 299 you have to pay me $5, so I get 304 right? So according to that economic reasoning, everybody will keep on underbidding each other. And eventually they get to 180, which is mean lowest amount. That is game theory according to uh, what we taught to economic students. But when you actually put that question in survey to even a uh, professor, university professor of various schools, 56% of them say, I choose 300. Okay, you choose. Because what? Well, from economic point of view, it's not right, but from a moral point of view, you wish to do the right thing to the other person. Even though to say choose 299, you get more money, but you, got, you don't do it. So an irrational in a sense, but rational in a more general sense of being cooperative. And people are finding more and more evidence of 
people being very cooperative contrary to the uh, standard economic presumption that people are competitive. So economics uh, emphasize too much the competitive aspect and not enough the cooperative aspect, which is another part of human nature. So we're coming up to the, the end of our allotted time for this interview, but I wanted to touch on an issue that um, all three of you have raised, which is education. Seeing as you're all teachers here at the ANU, or you, you, you all um, teach students in your respective fields, and universities are places where upcoming politicians, lawyers, and economists tend to um, learn their craft. What obligations do you think there are for academics who are training the next generation of leaders? Perhaps if we start with you, Vivian. Uh, huge. Because I think uh, we, in some of the legal education literature, um, they talk about the hidden curriculum. So I think that even if ethics isn't up front and values are not up front and centre in the formal curriculum, the students are absorbing from the academy in everything they do to d have to do with the academy what the values and ethics are of the academics and the institution as a whole. Um, so yes, I think I think that the ethical environment of the classroom and the college and the university is critical. I think that one of the important things, quite aside from trying to drill in any substantive ethical norms into students, I think that the most important thing you can really do as an educator is try to get them to adopt various norms of how they interact with one another even when they do disagree. Mm -hmm. So giving the sense that you can have sincere disagreement among well-meaning people and that you can actually discuss and try to work through some of these disagreements, you still may not agree. You may have debates where you have various different norms, but you can nevertheless keep a kind of trust in the process of engaging with one another. That seems to be important, not just in ordinary interaction, but in politics. When you mentioned before this idea of loss of trust in institutions, it seems to me there are very different kinds of trust that you can have. Some are less worrisome than others. To some extent, the idea that we don't trust government could simply mean that we're not happy with what government does, given our values and given what we think they ought to do most of the time. That's probably part and parcel with politics. It's just not going to be the case when you have competitive dynamics that you do get what you want a lot of the time. That's quite different than losing trust in the idea that institutions aren't even-handed or fair, or that they are going to be procedural irregularities, or that your vote isn't going to get counted, or that special favors are going to be distorting the political process in important ways, or that there's not going to be any decorum about public debate. So I think one of the things that's sort of important is that there can be certain things we can agree on, even we, if we disagree about a lot of things, and keeping those norms of debate and listening and presenting evidence and arguing in good faith and not simply attacking a person but engaging with their position. Those are some of the most important things that you can, I think, help develop as an educator. But I think a lot of students are pretty naturally that way, which is a, a good thing. Yeah, I think a liberal art education is very important. And uh, people tend to put too much emphasis today on specialization with specialized engineering and technology and things like that. But I think uh, it's important for education system to make sure that people have a broad knowledge of people as they will learn about philosophy, anthropology, and all sort of things, and um, to be a, a complete person. And uh, every professor, I believe, in every discipline should start their first lecture with moral attitude, not preaching from above, but rather just mentioning, reminding them gently the kind of social situation that may, I might involve in. Ask them the kind of question, what would you like it if you were a refugee? How would you like to be treated if you were a migrant? That kind of thing. Instead of, uh, well, people are willing to, to imagine themselves in their sort of situation if you are asked 
if they are asked nicely. And that kind of thing will give them a sense of empathy and they become more generous. So uh, it's very important to, to remind people of their inner good. Uh, I, I have been receiving that kind of advice all the time. And they remind me, sometimes I turn selfish and people remind me, what happened if you were a refugee? Okay, that may take me aback, right? Okay, maybe I was too selfish to say defend our borders, that kind of thing. A final question to all of you, and I'm going to touch on each of your respective fields again. If you could change one thing about politics, the law, or economics to make it more ethical, what would you change? So perhaps if we, if we want to start with you, Christian, for a, a bit of a political perspective, what would you change about politics to make it more ethical if you had to change one thing? It's a big question. But <laughs> try your best. Um, okay. So, I mean, again, I think that there, there are two ways of looking at that. One is that to make politics more ethical in some sense, I would want to say, well, given what by my own lights, the way society ought to be arranged, I would like the policies that I think would satisfy that criterion to be adopted more often. Um, but more realistically, I would say I do think that there is something important about having certain kind of trust in the political process and trust in certain norms of debate, um, which I do worry is being frayed at the ends. And social media plays some role in this, but it's not solely to, responsible for it. What I really worry is about a situation in which people are incapable of engaging with one another about their disagreements in a way that however the political process sorts things out, they can regard as fair. So I think that's one thing that I would change is not really about political institutions, although there are a lot of things I would want to change about political institutions, but more about the norms that people have with, with one another when it comes to debating things that they disagree about, including political issues. No, for uh, what would you change about uh, economics if you could change one thing? Well, not just economics, but I think uh, in every discipline, we think we should encourage activism, social activism, people to think and to interact with each other and to do what they think is right. Don't just acknowledge authority. Uh, societies, many societies are becoming increasingly more inclusive, which is actually a progress in, in things. Even in Taiwan, they are now talk, the first Asian society talk about gay marriage and uh, they're moving in that direction. So I think that's really important to, to have some grassroots movement, making people become more aware of their power to be social activists. And Vivian, uh, legal perspective? Yeah, like Christian, I find it very difficult to say one thing. Certainly one thing would be more funding for community legal services and legal aid. And I note that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about domestic violence and violence against women and the government taking that seriously. But unless they're going to fund the, the lawyers to help those women, um, really that's empty words in my view. So access to justice is one thing. And I think probably related is that there's been some disturbing reports both in, a, in a report in Australia and a report internationally by the American Bar Association about harassment and discrimination in the legal profession um, and the you know, um, surprising and disturbing percentage of employees to which that happens, to whom that happens. So I think that, um, you know, increasing the equality of women in the profession, um, hopefully, will make a difference to the whole, well, to the ethos and the way legal work is done, and that will filter down to clients. Our guests today were Vivian Holmes, No Van Long, and Christian Barry. Vivian, No, and Christian, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.
So once again, a big thanks to our guest today for the podcast. And unfortunately, Vivian had to leave earlier, but we've still got Christian Barry and Novan Long around. And they're going to help Sharon and I discuss some of the audience um, questions and comments from our previous podcasts and previous Policy Forum articles. So let's get right into it. We want to talk about an article that you wrote just last week, Sharon, on the topic of children and and, um, crossing the borders in the United States. And we got a few... um, a few comments, some positive, some negative. And let's start with a positive one um, from Fakatuato Mangisi on Twitter, who said it was an insightful article on Policy Forum. And Professor Sharon Bessel's take on the USA border crisis um, also draws parallels to Australia's policies and, that, and shows that public policy can either address wicked problems or perpetuate them. What do you think, Sharon? Does that pretty much... Hit, hit the article on the head as far as you see it? Yes, I mean, that's precisely what the article was trying to, to draw out, Nikki, and to tease out, um, you know, the, the potential for policy um, to do harm or to do good. Um, I think the policy in the United States has, has been debated, but it's difficult to make a moral case that separating children from their parents is ever morally or ethically acceptable and that's a policy that doesn't do harm. Um, There's an enormous amount of evidence to suggest the the trauma or to indicate the trauma that children suffer if they are separated from their parents under any circumstances, let alone under circumstances such as these. I guess what I was trying to to draw out in that article as well was the the, um, tension between the international human rights framework which places the best interests of the child and the protection of children at the forefront um, and domestic policy that has simply disregards those, those um, international principles. And, of course, making the point in relation to that article that the United States hasn't ratified the key international instrument around children's human rights, which is the Con- Convention on the Rights of the Child. The US is the only country that hasn't ratified that convention. Of course, many countries, including Australia, have ratified it um, and still don't take seriously the obligations under that convention. So we also got a, a bit of a more negative comment, and this is something that I'd like to hear Christian's thoughts on. Um, we had Ronald on Twitter say, in responding to the article, where was the liberal outrage when this happened? And he posts a link to some of Obama's um, policies and how children were also separated from fa- their, their families under some of his immigration policies. And I want to I hear your thoughts on, on this type of argument, which we seem to come across a lot, which is a, a form of whataboutism. You hear about the negative things that one side of politics does and you think, well, the other side has done it too, so I'm just going to respond in that way. What, what do you think about this t- form of argument? Yeah, so I think, there's, I think you're right that that form of argument is everywhere. And I think there's something to it, but we shouldn't overstate the significance of such arguments. So when it's done effectively saying what about and referring to some other injustice can play a useful role. It can make someone aware of injustices that were already existing that they weren't aware of or that they tended to downplay simply because they felt a certain degree of sympathy for the administration in charge. And I think that really is the case. There really were lots of very difficult, it was very problematic policies under the Obama administration with respect to the treatment of ig- immigrants. And I think that anybody who's criticizing the present kinds of policies um, should also have a negative attitude towards many of those policies. Um, but what we shouldn't infer from that, of course, is that there's anything any way justifiable about the present set of policies or that the present set of policies wouldn't be worse in some respects than the past policies. So I think both of those things are true. I think that There were very bad policies under the Obama administration. Nevertheless, some of these policies that are currently being enforced are worse, and they're also bad. So 
if you look at whataboutism as a way of somehow justifying something that's being criticized, it fails as an argument. The only thing that you should be focusing on when you're looking at whether or not a policy is just is the justice of that policy. Whether or not there were other previous just policies or not is really immaterial to that issue. But if it's looked at as a way of drawing greater attention to people of various different political persuasions that this is not sort of an outlier policy or if it's an outlier policy, at least it's less of an outlier than it might otherwise be assumed to be, then it can actually play a useful role in public discussion. Yeah, I think um, one unfortunate thing that happened in the U.S. is that people are taking partisan attitude. So they just want to say, we are the good, they are the way, the bad. Uh, for, and they try to ignore the, any bad part that they have done uh, or any good part that their opponent could have. Uh, and that really didn't help because we, the political um, spectrum becoming more and more polarized and that's really bad for everyone. So it would be better if some, someone somehow start to have a more uh, less adversarial sort of approach. We say, okay, uh, suppose you are a Democrat and you say, actually this happened during Obama, which is sad. But then uh, it also illustrates the fact that it's a difficult situation to handle the refugee problem. How do you keep the parents? How do you treat the children? Do you put them in a hotel or you put them in jail, right? So the kind of thing are difficult decisions to make. Um, but um, we have, should be honest to ourselves and, and honest in admitting the fact rather than trying to hide some fact or even um, some, some actually some... Democrats, uh, they post a photo of something that happened during Obama regime. They say it's happening right now, but actually it was happening during the Obama regime. That's bad. Uh, well, that particular instance, anyway. So people should try to be um, more cooperative in a way and uh, willing to accept your mistake or the mistake of your your party and become less partisan. You know, in the, the older days, America was less partisan than they are today. And that is really sad. I think we re- need to be very careful not to oversimplify really complex issues. Um, and the whataboutism, I think, is, is part of that. So if we take that particular policy in the United States... Um, and we think about the, that sort of labelling of liberal outrage. I'm not sure you would call responses in the United States liberal outrage. Um, there were many conservatives, there were many Republicans who were arguing against the particular policy that um, the Trump administration had adopted. So I think this was an issue that went beyond liberal or conservative divisions or Republican-Democrat divisions. Um, It was a deeply ethical issue that people engaged in across all of those boundaries. And I think if we're going to have um, the kind of complex discussion that we need to really address some of these really complex issues, we need to move beyond those silos and beyond labelling people as being in one camp or the other to allow discussion across those labels um, and to try to find solutions across those political divides. Um, If you think about the situation in Australia and the detention of children, certainly um, advocates of the human rights of 
child asylum seekers were highly critical of the Labor government, were highly critical of the coalition government. And so we, we saw criticism across political divides there. And I think we really need to move beyond these categories and we certainly need to move beyond using these categories to shut down debate. We need to open up the space for, for reasoned and thoughtful discussion of these issues. Right. One last, I mean, what, what about is a form of what philosophers call an ad hominem argument? So you're effectively attacking a person rather than a position. You're saying, where was your outrage? You're not saying whether or not your current outrage, you're not engaging with whether or not your current outrage is in any way warranted. Those are always dangerous types of arguments. And they also tend to devolve into, as you put it, <laughs> strongly partisan, conflictual engagement with each other. Great. Well, thanks for all your thoughts on that one. Um, now I'd like to move on to a, the second article, which has got a lot of attention and we'd like to highlight today, which is, which is the topic of cyclists and autonomous vehicles. And it's called, Will Life Be Better in the Saddle When No One's Behind the Wheel? And this is by Craig Richards. Um, and as is often the case, when any articles are published on the topic of cyclists, it, it, it inspires quite an emotive response from a lot of people. And we definitely saw some of that in the, the comments that we got. Um, first, I'd just like to highlight um, some... Uh, quite thoughtful comments. We had um, Bernie on Facebook who says that my prediction is autonomous vehicles will be programmed to err on the side of caution and will drive slower and more conservatively than other vehicles. This will induce road rage for conventional motorists who consequently drive impatiently and dangerously around autonomous cars, um, which I think is, is, an, is an interesting issue as we move into the autonomous vehicle age, what happens for the people who are still driving their cars as they're interacting with the autonomous ones. So yeah, moving on to the Comments from people who feel quite strongly about cyclists on the road. You've got Robert on Facebook who says, nah, they'll still be they'll still ride on the road. He's talking about cyclists here. Terrorising motorists when they're only a metre from an exclusive bike path. Noel on Facebook says, no, they'll run into one another. John on Facebook says, less bikes, no problem. What is it about cyclists that seems to inspire such a uh, combative attitude from so many people, do you think? Maybe hear from you, Sharon. Well, I guess when you hear some of these debates, it's it's a them and us divide often that if you're a cyclist, you're a cyclist and not a motorist. If you're a motorist, you're a motorist and not a cyclist. Um, I guess if I were to link this back to the conversation we were, we were having, it strikes me that this is again about people putting themselves into silos and not thinking about the world from any other perspective. Um, so, you know, the comments that are, that are very negative around cyclists are assuming that, you know, people don't move across cycling and, and driving cars, whereas in reality, people move across being a cyclist and being a car driver just as they move across their political positions on different issues. So, um, yeah, to me, it goes back to this problem of um, siloing people and siloing issues and then thinking about them in fairly simplistic ways. It's also, as somebody who both cycles and drives, I admit that even though I'm not <laughs> siloed in general, um, it's very easy to switch from the perspective of a motorist to a cyclist. So I have experiences of going just outraged at the way in which people are driving and then I'll be in my car and I'll be outraged by the way in which people are exposing others to risk with cycling. I think some of the difficulties about cycling is that it's not... They don't have a, a clear and defined sense of what they are on the road. So um, are they like more like a pedestrian or are they more like a car? There's something kind of like in between. And I think um, it's difficult as a cyclist to navigate that, right? On the one hand, you have a right to a sidewalk, but 
I at least feel a little bit less uncomfortable, more uncomfortable on a sidewalk than when I'm walking on a sidewalk. And yet you also have a right to be on the road. It's not that you don't have a right to be on the road, but obviously it's a you're, you're very vulnerable when you're on the road. You also have a sense that, well, do I really belong here in the same way in which a car belongs here? So I think there's some ambivalence both from the perspective of the cyclists about where they ought to be and ambivalence from the perspective of not just the drivers but pedestrians. And sometimes I'm a pedestrian and I'm terrified by the way in which people are riding on the, on the back path. So, um, so these are – I think there are some – interesting puzzles there. Yeah, but I think a lot of this had to do with uh, the power of municipal government. I think many municipal m- municipalities in Europe and in Canada have uh, adopted policy of uh, expanding cycle paths and uh, closing a lot of road for car traffic. Uh, you know, the two modes of transport can coexist and should coexist. Uh, of course, as you say, um, s- some some cyclists, especially in Holland, are very aggressive, and they can just bump into any pedestrian and swear at you when you when you happen to step on your path. Uh, so that's not help either, and maybe ethical behavior <laughs> might help there teach them to think about the perspective a bit. But on the whole, I think cycling is, is a great thing, and uh, not only great for the cyclists, but um, for the family, for the health of the family, you know, healthy person, a happy person, uh, and so on. So um, maybe there's a room for public subsidy in um, bicycle path development and things like that. Um, that would be great. I think, Nikki, just on Bernie's point too, where he predicts how autonomous vehicles might be programmed into the future, and I think that raises a much bigger issue um, around the ways in which technology often runs ahead of our thinking about the implications of the use of that technology. And so I think Bernie's point is is a really nice comment in reminding us that um, thinking about the the ethics, um, the social issues related to technology is so fundamentally important um, as the technology moves ahead at an incredible pace. And also, I mean, the technology makes clear some of the decisions that we face in a, as an individual driver all the time. So we, it's up to us insofar as we can actually get the algorithms right. And I'm assuming that we can detect cyclists very well and all the rest of it. There's still going to be a question about, well, where there's a risk of crashing into an oncoming vehicle or a risk in swerving and hitting a cyclist instead, what the algorithm ought to be. Right. So those are challenging questions that are going to that are not really just technological questions or ethical questions about how we trade off various types of risks. And um, that's something we're going to have to face if these sophisticated mechanisms become more sophisticated still. And I think we need to be thinking about those issues right now because the technology is moving ahead right now. Well, thanks to all of you for your thoughts on that. And unfortunately, that is all we've got time for today. And thanks also to our listeners who and our, our readers on Policy Forum who have sent in those comments. Um, we really appreciate it and we'd love to get your thoughts on anything that was discussed today, anything that's posted on Policy Forum or any ideas you have for future podcasts. You can send them through to us um, at podcast at policyforum.net. You can also get us on Twitter where we are Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Another reminder that um, we do this every week, but if you do have time to leave us a rating on iTunes, it really goes a long way to getting word out about the podcast and we'd, we'd really appreciate that. That's all for now, but we'll be back next week with a very special 50th episode of Policy Forum Pod. If you've made it this far, then we can safely assume you're enjoying these podcasts. So let us know which of the 49 we've done so far have, has been your favourite because we'll be highlighting a few of them over the week ahead. Uh, We'll catch you then. Bye for now.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.